Hey, Court TV podcast listeners, things move fast in the legal world. Literally hours after finishing this week's podcast on the closing arguments of the murder of George Floyd trial, we got a verdict. So keep that in mind as you listen to this episode, and then keep an eye out for a bonus episode covering the dramatic verdict in the Derek Chauvin murder trial. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, after three weeks of testimony and 45 witnesses, it has now all come down to closing arguments where the entire trial can be won or lost. Court TV's Michael Ayala joins me to discuss how the prosecution and the defense did and what to expect next. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinny Politan. Here we are. Here we are. As we're recording this, we are in a verdict watch. In the case against Derek Chauvin, the man accused of murdering George Floyd, closing arguments have been completed. And what we're going to do is take a, take a look at those closing arguments because that is the last chance that the attorneys on both sides had an opportunity to try to influence this jury, convince them of their case. Uh, and it was interesting to watch, really interesting. Michael Ayala uh, with me as always, Court TV anchor. Um, I, I will tell you this, Michael, the, the one thing about this case, the attorneys were prepared, they were thorough, um, but they were much less dramatic than I am. <laughs> the 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 general demeanor of these attorneys uh, was amazing. You know, you see it a lot from prosecutors, but uh, not as much from the defense. But on, on both ends, they really kind of uh, played to a, a very even keel for the most part. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I would even go so far as to say at least uh, it was kind of boring. Um, you know, especially the prosecution, I thought I didn't want to use that word. <laughs> I didn't want to use that word, but you went there. It, I think I think was. you're right. I, I think you know, especially with the length, right? The length of it going on and on, it there was you know, they didn't they didn't vary their cadence very much and it was very monotone. I, I, you know, when I thought when the the judge finally called for a break during uh, Eric Nelson's closing that went on and on, it was the perfect time because I was getting bored. I'm sure the jury was hungry and tired. I'm sure you could see that they needed a break as well. Um, but, um, you know, I think as we talked about before, you have to know your audience, right? And Eric Nelson, from the very beginning, folks have told me he's not a guy that has a lot of his histrionics, doesn't put, you know, doesn't play act in the courtroom, doesn't get outraged. And, and he's been a very successful attorney uh, by all accounts. So maybe the Minnesota juries don't like all of that like all those histrionics and everything that, you know, we may be more used to seeing, you know, from, from where we're from on the East Coast, right? So, you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, I, and I've seen those histrionics in the South. Uh, it's a different way of doing it, but in the, they do it in the South, they do it in the Northeast, but um, I, and it may just be the way, and I think you're, I think you're right. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it all turns out. But let's start with uh, uh, Stephen Slisher, who, who gave the first uh, closing argument for the defense, I mean, for the prosecution. He's a defense attorney, but uh, is, is a prosecutor in this case. Let's take a listen. George Floyd said, I'm not trying to win. This was a call about a counterfeit $20 bill. All that was required was some compassion. Humans need that. People need that. 
But more fundamental than that, and more practical at that time, in that place, what George Floyd needed was some oxygen. That's what he needed. He needed to breathe. I think those words are, are, are effective, and, it's a, and it's, a, it's a powerful way to put this. Um, what do you think of the compassion part of it, though, that George Floyd needed compassion from uh, uh, the police that day? Well, there was a definite theme uh, throughout um, the prosecution's case. They even began by explaining to, um, in opening statements, explaining to the jury what the oath of the job involves and the fact that they have a duty of care um, to the people that they're not only arresting, but the people that they're patrolling for, the people that they're out there protecting. Um, they have a duty of care. And I think that's an important element to this case that um, they had to humanize George Floyd, which I think they did a fantastic job of doing that. And I believe that uh, Slisher opened his closing argument talking about his name. Uh, and we heard the cry from the crowds from the very beginning regarding all these victims that say their name. Um, and he started with his name, uh, reminding folks that George was a human being and to humanize him, not just see him as this sort of big black man or someone or, or a drug addict. <clears throat> And then by going on and calling on the fact that what's required from police officers, no matter who the person that they're dealing with, no matter what they've done, the requirement of police officers is to have compassion. Because I think the thing that sticks out from that tape most is the fact that there seemed to be a lack of compassion. And I think it was important for them to harp on that, to bring that up. And I thought it was very effective. Yeah, it may be very effective. I, I just don't agree uh, with the compassion part of it. I mean, at some point, obviously, but the, but it's a it's an you know it's a situation that starts one way and and ends somewhere else. And I mean, for the theme of compassion in in, in policing in all these situations, I don't know if that will resonate with everyone. Uh, and 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 it, we'll see what the jury does. But it, it doesn't resonate with me as a theme. There to me, it's more about. Uh, professionalism and doing your job and understanding the situation um, because, you know, it was a very, it was when Chauvin shows up, it's a volatile situation at that point. Um, he's not there investigating a forgery. He's there because there was a call for backup needed. And as he shows up, he, you, you could see the struggle and how George Floyd is resisting. So for me, the compassion part of it, yes, when, when George Floyd loses uh, consciousness, you, you need that. But to me, the theme is more they need to do their job as professionals and, and recognize a change in circumstance. Um, but that's just me. I, and, think, and, and, I think that's where the compassion comes in. I think what they were trying to uh, highlight for the jury is you're exactly right, that they had to do their job and be professional. But they wanted the jury to understand that doing your job and being professional means having compassion even in circumstances like this one. And that's not something that you think of often, right? You don't think of that aspect of a police officer's job, but it's right there in the, on the badge and in the oath that they take. So they wanted them to understand that that was part of the job. And I think that's an important part when you get to the, to the end of the confrontation, where there isn't any more resistance, that at that point there needed to be a shift and some compassion needed to be shown. You heard what Jerry Blackwell said at the very end in the rebuttal, Oh, we're going to get there. Okay. We're going to get there. I'll, I'll, let, I'll, I'll leave that for a little bit later. <laughs> we'll line it up. That's the big exclamation point, which I thought was was well done. All right, let's let's talk more about this humanization uh, of George Floyd by Slisher, which, again, was a very effective part of his close. Let's listen. His name was George Perry Floyd Jr., and he was born on October 14, 
1973 in Fayetteville, North Carolina to his parents, George Floyd Sr. and Larcinia Jones Floyd. Sissy. That's uh, what you were talking about, and, and, and a very big part of this case. And that's one thing prosecutors did a great job of, of is not losing sight of the victim. Too many times in these cases, the victim gets lost in everything. George Floyd did not get lost in this trial. He was a prominent part of this trial, as I believe every victim should be in every case. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, I think it was a really big part of their case. I, did, I thought they did a great job of humanizing him. And as you know, there were restrictions as to how far they could go. because They didn't want to open the door to a lot of his past. Uh, but the judge told them a number of times that if they went too far, the spark of life testimony humanizing him, uh, that would open the door for the defense to bring in some of his prior arrests and things of that nature. So they were limited, but I thought they did a fantastic job, in particular when they had his girlfriend uh, testify. And she explained um, how they got addicted to painkillers. And they, you know these, these painkillers are just insidious and they're sort of tearing their way through society. And he wasn't just some random drug addict, he was a person like any other who trying to deal with pain got addicted to painkillers and found himself in some really tough situations. And I think it was really effective way to, to humanize him. And I think they did, like you said, a great job of that. Now, the most important thing I think prosecutors need to do in every closing argument they did in their case, which is the roadmap to conviction, right? You go through the elements of the crime uh, very meticulously, very simply to show them, okay, here's what we need to prove and here's how we proved it. And, they did that, and, and they did it very effectively. And, and to me, that's never the most exciting part of a closing argument. It's not the most emotional, but to me, it's, it's ultimately what is needed. You need to give that ammunition and make it very simple. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is how you get to conviction on this charge, this charge, and the final charge. And they did that. Yeah, absolutely, no question. And that, you know... What I, what I thought was particularly interesting about that was that in the end, the judge really sided with the prosecution in terms of what the definitions were. So the intent definition, uh, which was a very important part of this case in terms of proving the intent. And the question was whether there was going to be a need to prove that he intended to harm George Floyd or if he just intended the act of being on top of George Floyd. And as part of the charge that the uh, the defense presented, they wanted it to go the first way, that they had to prove that he intended to harm George Floyd. But case law in Minnesota suggests that the other definition was the proper one, the one presented by um, the prosecution that said intent was only, uh, you needed to prove that he needed to, to, to intend the act itself of getting on top of George Floyd, and then he was responsible for whatever consequences flowed from that. So he didn't have to Hurt him, and I think that part was an underestimated important part of this this case, and they went through that very clearly for this jury. Yeah, what that did, and, and you're talking about the second degree murder, which is really felony murder um, in Minnesota. They don't call it felony murder, but it is felony murder, and it's and it's proving the assault of of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin. And and for me, in the beginning of this case, I looked at that charge, and to give a sports analogy, to me it was like trying to hit a three pointer with a hand in your face. Okay. And after, after the state won the argument and got the jury instruction that they wanted, it turned into an uncontested layup. It, it, it's unreal in, in, in how easy it's going to be for them to prove the state of mind necessary 
uh, to convince the jury of second degree murder, the top charge. They basically, I looked at it and it was, you know, to prove assault, assault's defined as uh, intentional infliction of bodily harm. That's the definition of third degree assault. And the Minnesota Supreme Court has interpreted that to mean you don't need to prove intentional infliction of bodily harm to prove intentional infliction of bodily harm. What? How? How? Yeah. Put three. Put three lawyers in a room. They could. They could come up with that conclusion, and they did. And it's the law in Minnesota. And and it and it really is easy. So now, if they prove causation, second degree murder is is a done deal here. If if the jury follows the law. Yeah, I mean, proof of proof of the intent, the way it's played out for this jury and the way it was explained to this jury is on the tape. You just have to look at the tape and it's right there. You don't even have to make any kind of arguments for it. Um, and, and you're right. As a lay person, I've tried to explain this to a couple of friends of mine. They just have a hard time understanding. But I just used the case, which is a Thorn case, where someone was at a at a bonfire. The person was kind of, you know, uh, ribbing them about something. The person then pushes the person and the person falls into a fire and is burned up. Um, and the court basically said that you didn't have to intend to push the person into the fire, but to be responsible for the consequences of the push. It was just the intentional push. And then the person who did the pushing is responsible for the consequences of the push, right? And so when you explain it to people that way, it was a little easier for them to understand, but you're right. Uh, sometimes the law can be a little difficult to understand. Okay. Well, well, the, the Dorn case is, is to me a little bit different than this, though, because when you intend to push someone, uh, are you intending to harm them? Like, under, under what guise would you push them other than to harm them? Why else would you push someone? Whereas for Derek Chauvin, the argument is he's restraining someone as part of his job. So to me, it's two completely different situations. I mean, I'm just, I have no right to touch you, Michael Ayala, but if I shove you, I'm intending to cause some level of harm to you, whether that harm is extreme if you fall into a fire or just the harm of the push, whereas Derek Chauvin uh, arguably is doing his job as a police officer. To me, very distinguishable. Uh, I disagree. And I think if you go back to the opening statements of Jerry Blackwell, there was a statement he made that was confusing to me at the time, but after the charge, I understood it. He said, unreasonable use of force is assault. And that's what he means. If you're just doing things in the course of your job and according to the way you were trained, it is not unusual, unreasonable force, and therefore you can't get to the assault. But if you find, Jerry, that this is an unreasonable use of force, which is, of course is what the prosecution spent a lot of time trying to show this jury and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that was in fact unreasonable use of force, then being on top of him is not within the scope of the job, is therefore an intended act that resulted in the consequences and therefore amounts to assault. But hold on, Michael Ayala. The state was telling this jury that they didn't have to see any unlawful conduct. You just described unlawful conduct, which results in the harm. And the state argued to this jury that no unlawful conduct was necessary and objected when, when the defense said they need to prove that the conduct was unlawful. So how is that possible? Now you've got the state saying all you have to do is lawful conduct. The state was arguing lawful conduct can equal murder. And they specifically told this jury that they did not. This to me, this is inconsistent. This is a problem. 
It might be. It depends on how you defend unlawful. Um, is unreasonable use of force still lawful? Under certain circumstances, it just might be. But under these circumstances, it's not. So if, in fact, that argument was captured by the jury, there is a contradiction there. But yeah. um, uh, I'm not sure that that's one that's going to resonate with the jury. All right. I, well, it may resonate with the appellate court. I'll tell you that. Hey, let's listen to Jerry Blackwell because his rebuttal argument, right? Because the prosecution gets to go twice. They go first, then the defense goes, and then the prosecution, because they have the burden of proof, get the final word. And Jerry Blackwell delivered that. Let's listen to uh, uh, the first part of, of one of his continuing themes uh, from the opening statement. And when Mr. Floyd is saying, please, please, I can't breathe 27 times in just a few minutes, you saw it when Mr. Chauvin did not let up and we didn't get up. Even when he, when he passed out, not breathing anymore, he doesn't let up or get up. When he knows he doesn't have a pulse, he doesn't let up or get up. Even when the ambulance comes, he doesn't let up or get up even then. They have to come up and tap him before he will let up and get up off the body of Mr. George Floyd. I like the way he you know, goes through the different points of time because that's ultimately, I think, their strongest argument is that the situation changed and and Chauvin did not change. And those words, did not let up, did not get up, um, that's going to be running around everybody's mind inside that jury room. Yeah, and, and you know, that that's exactly right. There comes a point where, um, and I think Nelson made a, a, a good point of this in his closing, that for a, a, a large portion of the time, the force being used by police is correct. But there comes a time, and it's very clear, I believe, on that tape, where things needed to change. Things changed, the resistance changed, and the actions of the police officers needed to change. And it did not change. That's where the compassion comes in. That's where their training comes in. That's where their CPR comes in. That's where the, uh, the knowledge of what to do with someone who is in that position and no longer has a pulse or passed out, what you need to do. And that knowledge from training should have kicked in and it didn't. And, and the statement that I was going to mention earlier that Jerry Blackwell said, hopefully I didn't see if you play this later, but he says, no, you know, no, they, no, wait, wait, wait. We've got more. We've got more. Oh, got We've got more. more Michael. I, I that was the He's last always one. jumping the gun. He, put his he doesn't up, trust me. Last one. I'm going to say it at some point, man. So let me say, no, I'll, I'll wait till later. But anyway, the point they were making again, was that uh, they did not give him the proper duty of care. And when that situation changed, without the proper duty of care, without that compassion, it became unreasonable force. And that unreasonable force is assault. And assault under that statute is, requires a, a conviction of second-degree murder. Very clear steps. And I, I agree 1,000% uh, with you that there was not this uh, change. There's a change of circumstance, and the change of conduct did not occur uh, by Chauvin. I think there was an attempt by Lane to change the course of what was happening, uh, and by King, and uh, and Chauvin was really the one in charge, and he did not change course for them. And that, I believe, is is where everything went very south here, and where uh, the professional training and everything kind of went out the window. And I, I still don't understand why. I don't understand why. It makes no sense. The defense's explanation for it is, is the weakest part of their case, and that's the crap. That's now, the crap. Let's the bystanders blame the bystanders. That that's not. Oh, absolutely, work. absolutely. Let's get to the big finish by Jerry Blackwell. <laughs> a lot of buildup during the course of the podcast so far. Um, but, it, you know, it stuck out to me. I, I saved it for now because I, I thought this was a great expl exclamation point at the end. I thought this was a great way to finish. And 
picture him saying this while showing that photo of Derek Chauvin on top of George Floyd. You were told, um, for example, that Mr. Floyd died, that Mr. Floyd died because his heart was too big. You heard that testimony. And now having seen all the evidence, having heard all the evidence, you know the truth. And the truth of the matter is that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small. And that's just uh, brilliant. Uh, brilliantly done. Um, and, and I think be, for two reasons, right? One, it directly addresses the defense argument about heart issues. And number two, it gets to the mind, the intent of Derek Chauvin. And wow, I, I thought it was it was perfect. Yeah, it was perfect. You know, and I, I've, I call it the Johnny Cochranization of law. Um, the more you can come up with these phrases that will stick in the mind of, of your jurors, I think the better off you are. I think Jerry Blackwell from the very beginning, had he didn't let up, he didn't get up, then ended with, you know, the heart thing that you just played. I think those are two things that were very powerful, very succinct, something that the jurors can take with them into that uh, deliberating room and, and really uh, bring home this, this, this issue. And you talked about it earlier, the compassion, the, what was required under the circumstances and why. Um, it is okay, because I believe jurors need permission to convict police officers, right? That's why you bring in a bunch of officers to point the finger and say what he did was wrong. That's why you bring the chief in to say that that doesn't fit with our morals and that's nothing that we teach because they need permission to put themselves in the shoes of an officer and find those decisions in the field wrong. And that's the type of thing that gives them permission to do that. Yeah, and I think the other thing is this case is different. Most of the police cases, it's a decision made in a split second. It usually involves a gun and it happens fast. And that's, I think, uh, uh, jurors have a difficult time with that. This one, because it was nine minutes and 29 seconds, uh, I think a much different story. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other side of the coin. Eric Nelson, who had a few days off, was a little re-energized and and brought a a little more uh, life uh, to his arguments. We'll talk about that next. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So Eric Nelson was clearly worn out by the end of the of the case, at the end of the witnesses and the and the evidence in this case. And he had a few days off, Michael, and when he came in for his closing arguments, I, I, I thought we saw a new level of energy from Eric Nelson. He's still not you know, bouncing off the walls like, like some defense attorneys we've seen, but a much, much different approach for Eric Nelson. He seemed sharper, uh, he, 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 and he just seemed more on top of his game. Yeah, no question about it. He had worn down. Um, big time. And and it's understandable. Look, I, I'm not sure how much support he got from his back office. Again, he has a firm. He's a managing partner of that firm. But I, as we mentioned in the last podcast, I don't, I'm not sure that that own wolf persona is not pretty close to the truth. There's a lot of work being done by this man, not, not only during the 14 days of the trial, but going back months, uh, trying to get ready for a trial that we know happened very, very quickly. 
Um, so you had a lot to do to get up to speed. And I think it all just came crashing down there towards the end. But I, I agree. I think he looked refreshed. He looked better than he did for the entire uh, entire trial. So I think the weekend did it good. I think it was a good thing for him. Now, the other part of his uh, closing argument is that it lasted almost three hours. It was in two parts. The judge had to interrupt and, and use a TV timeout to get the jury fed for a half hour. Um, I, I thought if it had been condensed into about two hours, it may have been a little more powerful. But I understand where he's going. There's so many places and so many things. He doesn't want to leave anything on the table. He wants to make sure. And, and you never know what issue w- will resonate with what juror. Yeah, that's that's the struggle of a uh, of a defense attorney and probably the reason I left the profession. It just I mean, you just have someone's life in your hands um, and, and there's no rest. There really isn't. There, there's no amount of work you can do to make sure you've done enough. And I think that that showed in, in his closing argument, the idea that he wanted to make sure that he hit on everything he could possibly hit on, you know, in an attempt to, you know, win a conviction. I mean, win a an acquittal for his client. And, and you saw that, but again, uh, I think streamlining it a bit, I agree with you, would have been much better uh, right about, again, right about the time where the judge decided to take that TV timeout, as you call it. Um, I think it was the right time because I was losing, you know, interest in it. I'm sure the jurors were having a tough time after the entire morning. Um, this was something that was supposed to end the entire thing, including rebuttal, was supposed to end before lunch. So, you know, he did go on a little bit long, but again, a lot at stake. A man's liberty is at stake. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I don't know how you could have cut. You, you've, you've got to find a way to cut it down because I think you've got to give the jury those little nuggets that, um, again, that they will repeat. To me, a closing argument is all about giving, whether it's one, two, or th- from the defense perspective, one, two, or three jurors um, some ammunition, you know, something that they can use in their arguments that they have with other jurors to try to convince them. And uh, it wasn't necessarily delivered that way because of, because of the length of it and um, not a, a repetitive kind of theme going into it. But I still think it was effective, and I think he touched on everything. I'm, I'm not selling him short. It was incredibly thorough and, and may work here, uh, just not exactly the way um, I would have done it or, or I think is the most effective way, but we'll see. He knows these jurors better than we do. This is where he practices. Let's take a listen to a little piece of Eric Nelson. It stands to reason. I could get up in front of you and I could argue to you, we know this wasn't asphyxiation because George Floyd had a 98% oxygen level. How could he have been asphyxiated at the hospital with a 98% oxygen level? but that's not intellectually honest. It doesn't stack up against the rest of the evidence because of what we know. And that was sort of one of his themes, uh, if, he, if he had some. It was about the intellectual honesty, and I think this is his attempt to try to attack all of the uh, experts who testified for prosecutors in this case, and that was part of the battle that he had. He had to take on all these experts in specific areas and... On his side, he didn't have the equivalency. He didn't have an expert to cancel out all of their experts. Yeah, no question. And I think that was one of those little nuggets that you were talking about. I can honestly see one of the uh, jurors uh, getting stuck on that point. The idea that how do you die of asphyxiation when you have 98% oxygen levels in your blood? 
I mean, those, that's a very clear point that they can hold on to in terms of trying to figure out cause of death. Now, remember, what Eric Nelson was trying to do throughout this case, and what I think a lot of sort of lay people didn't quite understand, and you know, they were talking about how he's just, he's just coming up with anything. It all sounds like a bunch of excuses. Well, that's exactly what it was. It was a bunch of excuses, a bunch of uh, ways to muddy the waters, to, to cut into this, this um, reasonable doubt that they want this jury to have as to any of the elements of the crimes, whether it was an unreasonable use of force. He talks a lot about perspective and the reasonable officer. We talk about the cause of death. Just anything he could do to, to interject some reasonable doubt into these jurors' minds is what he was trying to do. And I, I think he did a perfect job of that. And you know, we talked about how he was using a lot of cross-examination to build his case. A lot of that came out in his closing argument as well, using a lot of the words of prosecution witnesses to, to help bolster his themes of not being believable or the perception of the police officer of the other uh, police officer at the scene being the most important thing. The other thing he did is he used a lot of the video, as prosecutors did, breaking down the video. He used more video, uh, I think, than the prosecution did in their closing argument, which is fascinating to me, right? Because this case exists because of, it, it began with the viral video, but uh, as a result, you know, you've got all these body cam videos. But the defense attempting to use the video as the strength of their argument to this jury is to me somewhat ironic. Uh, Do you think it was effective in the way that he used pieces of it and broke down exactly what was happening uh, from point to point to point and trying to put that jury into uh, Chauvin's uh, uniform and, and, and Chauvin's position that day? I think it was highly effective and it was it was not a surprise to me because I covered the Rodney King case and this was a out of that playbook. You said to me earlier during this podcast that, you know, the nine minutes and 29 seconds and it's a you know, it's not a split second decision. Well, you would have said the same thing in the Rodney King case. Right. You watch that video. How do you justify what we're seeing? It's the worst case of police brutality I've ever seen. And, and you would think that that tape would be the worst possible evidence for the defense. Well, what did the defense do? They broke that tape down into a series of split second decisions. Here, the officers are making commands. He is not listening to our commands, so we hit him again. And they went through the entire tape. Never would have bet that they would have done that before the trial. Same thing here. He took that tape and he wanted to play that tape for the jury and show them throughout the tape in different sections of this tape, there are decisions being made by a police officer, not by you from the perspective you have, not by the bystanders from the perspective they have, but by the perspective he had at the scene. He's the one that dealt with George Floyd for 17 minutes before the nine minutes and 29 seconds start. He understands the strength of this man. He understands the, the, the resistance he's getting from this man. That's what he wanted this jury to understand. And I thought it was right out of the playbook of Rodney King and very effective. All right, let's listen to him now deal with the issue of intent and the second degree murder, right? This is, you know, this is game over. You convicted a second degree murder. I mean, Derek Chauvin may very well spend the rest of his life behind bars. So this is, this is the most significant charge. Let's take a listen. All of this stuff that we've talked about throughout the entirety of this circumstance does not reflect an intent to purposefully intentionally commit an unlawful use of force. All of the evidence shows that Mr. Chauvin thought he was following his training. 
He was, in fact, following his training. He was following Minneapolis Police Department policies. He was trained this way. It all demonstrates a lack of intent. There is absolutely no evidence that Officer Chauvin intentionally, purposefully applied unlawful force. And that's the part that I think becomes an interesting issue. The intentional application of unlawful force. The state seems to be arguing that that no, you don't need we don't need to prove that where the defense is saying, well, they need to prove that and they did not prove it. So where do you see this issue landing with the jury first, Michael Ayala? Um, do you think the jury's going to hold the uh, defendant uh, to the standard or, or the state to the standard that they must prove that he intentionally applied unlawful force or just intentionally applied force? Well, if they follow what the judge said, right, they're not going to do the unlawful force part because they object. The prosecution objected to that characterization of what they had to prove. And there was a curative instruction given to the jury, reminding them of what intent was. Um, So, you know, hopefully they will continue to follow what the court has told them and that the intent part is only required regarding the act of getting on top of George Floyd. The results of those acts are not what's required. Doesn't have to be, he doesn't have to intend unlawful force. He just has to intend the force that resulted in the consequences, those consequences he is then responsible for. And, and the judge agreed with the prosecution that that was a, a somewhat overstatement or misstatement of what the requirement uh, of the prosecution was. To me, this is crazy, though. No, it's, it's nuanced, and, it, and it's confusing, and that was the purpose. Yeah, but you're in a te- let's say it's lawful force. You're t- intentionally applying lawful force and you end up convicted of murder. No, what the jury has to decide is the fact of whether that force that was applied that was intentional, they have to decide if that's unreasonable force. That's all they have to decide. They don't have to decide that he intended to inflict unreasonable force. There's a big difference there, Vinny. They just have to decide that he intended the act itself, and then the fact of whether that's unreasonable force is what they have to decide. And if they do, then they move on and they're but isn't unreasonable force illegal? Is unreasonable force lawful? How, how could no, un- but you didn't have but you didn't have to intend it. That's the issue. You don't have to intend it. Right. But what I'm saying is that if if the force is lawful and results in the death, but he intended the lawful force under that jury instruction, he gets convicted of murder. So the jury decides if it's lawful and lawful, I think you're using in uh, as a substitute for reasonable. It's the jury that decides if the force used was reasonable. If they find it unreasonable, then it be, then they move on in the inquiry. If they find it reasonable, then they don't. You know what I find unreasonable it is the is the Minnesota Supreme Court and their decisions in, in figuring this out. They made it much more complicated than it needs to be. And, it, and it's and it's unfortunate because it's there should be no gray area in determining murder charges. It shouldn't be this nuanced and subtle for a murder charge. Do do, do you agree? 
There isn't. The defense, the defense is trying to make it nuanced, but it isn't. You just have to intend the act itself. It's very straightforward. All right. Well, we'll see. I, I, I think this one uh, is problematic on appeal if he's convicted, but that's another podcast down the road, Michael Ayala. Speaking yeah. of which. Well, we'll do an appeal podcast. There's like 17 different issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll do it. Better ones, better ones than this yeah. one. We'll do, it. we'll do it a couple of years from now if there's a conviction. And, and again, we don't know if there's going to be a conviction. There could be. There could not be. It's up to the jury. They're the only ones that matter uh michael ayala great stuff thank you sir so much appreciate your time uh i know we're all on pins and needles here waiting for this verdict oh boy it's always fun uh benny thank you very much for having me all right when we come back uh for some reason uh i'm gonna be talking about maxine waters what yeah because maxine waters came up in court and is an actual issue in this case for some reason and i'll explain why the judge is livid that's next Renowned journalist Ashley Banfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history. This is the new chapter in true crime. Judgment with Ashley Banfield. All new episodes, Sunday nights at 8 on Court TV. I'm aware of the media reports. I'm aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and about the unacceptability of a uh, anything less than a murder conviction and talk about being confrontational, but you can submit the press articles about that. This goes back to what I've been saying from the beginning. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch and our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the constitution to respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent, but I don't think it has prejudiced us with additional uh, material that would prejudice this jury. They have been told not to watch the news. I trust they are following those instructions and that there is not in any way uh, a prejudice to the defendant beyond the articles that we're talking specifically about the facts of this case. A congresswoman's opinion really doesn't matter a whole lot. Anyway. So, motion for mistrial is denied. Unbelievable. Congresswoman Maxine Waters, she's from California, is in the middle of the Derek Chauvin case, which is in Minnesota. Um, judge, absolutely livid. And, and, and for good reason. I mean, you have Maxine Waters um, talking about we need more confrontations in the streets if the jury comes back with a not guilty verdict. This is a, a congresswoman. Saying that out loud while the jury is is deliberating, or not even no, before they're deliberating, <laughs> because this happened in the weekend, so the jury wasn't even sequestered. Um, this is a problem on many different levels. Um, let, let's start first with this case, right? Um, it, it's a problem because if a juror hears that, if a if a juror was somehow influenced that that people will take to the streets with violence if if a conviction doesn't come back that that is a problem for this case and and the judge agreed you know the judge said this could be a, a, an issue on appeal now i don't know if it will be successful or not um it, it depends on a lot of a lot of different factors but it's extremely dangerous and reckless while the while the jury hasn't decided the case and don't get me wrong everyone's entitled to their opinion about the case 
and you can voice your opinion about whether you think the the evidence is there or is not, you know, what the person should or should not be convicted of, uh, what the sentence should or should not be. But this crossed a, a line, okay? And it's a, it's a very distinct line that we have here in this country, which makes our country's system of justice so much better than everyone else's, okay? Our system is designed to avoid mob justice, okay? It's not like something happens and the pitchforks come out and people are outraged and, and, and someone is convicted. That's not the way it works. We've got to, first of all, it all, it all is based upon a presumption of innocence, Every accused defendant in this country, whether it's a drug dealer, a murderer, a robber, someone who's committing a burglary, whatever it is, you're presumed innocent until a unanimous jury of ordinary citizens says otherwise. We don't give that power to elected officials. We don't give that power to uh, judges. We don't give that power to professional jurors. We give that power to our fellow citizens. And they've got to be unanimous. They all have to agree that, yeah, this was proven to the greatest standard under our system of justice, which is beyond any and all reasonable doubt. And until we reach that point, people are innocent. And, they, and this jury has to base this verdict solely on the evidence. There can't be any outside pressure from anywhere. And we have this meticulous um, jury selection process that we covered on Court TV where both sides get to question the jurors and the judge uh, questions the jurors to make sure everyone can be fair and impartial and they understand the rules. And for someone from the outside, let alone an elected official, to come up and say, if we don't get the verdict that we want, there will be more confrontations in the streets? That's beyond outrageous. That's, that's potentially juror intimidation. That's mob rule. That's mob justice. That's not what we do in this country. That's not what we do. It's so, uh, and this is where, and I say this a lot, the, the one time when our system of justice can be compromised, which is the, it's the best in the world, the only time it gets compromised is when it intersects with the world of politics and politicians like this that try to turn a jury verdict into some sort of a political decision. That has to be made. No, it's a judgment based upon facts and the law, period. Facts, law, period. Every case the same. Have you seen Lady Justice? She's blind. She doesn't care about everything else going around on the outside. It's about the facts of that case, what can be proven, and the law of the case and how the facts apply to the law and whether or not the burdens have been met by the prosecution. That's how we do it. Mob rule, mob justice has no place in this nation. And that's why what Maxine Waters did and said is so extremely dangerous. It's a slippery slope to go down. It's the third branch of government, but it's not politically determined. It's determined by ordinary citizens on the facts and the law, and that cannot change. If that ever changes, our system crumbles and ends up looking like a lot of other systems of justice around the world, which are pretty poor. All right, folks, we're on a verdict watch. Make sure you are watching Court TV 
because when that verdict comes down, we will bring it to you live. Now, if you step away from the TV for a minute, follow me on Facebook, Vinny Politan Court TV. I'll send you out a notification of when the verdict's been reached. I do that in all the cases uh, that we cover. But in the meantime, if you don't have Court TV or you can't find Court TV, if you have a digital antenna, just rescan it, folks, and, and you'll find us. Also, check out all the show notes. We have great links to lots more information on this case and others that we're covering on Court TV. Whew. Verdict can happen at any moment, so I've got to end the podcast now, just in case. Just in case. I'm Vinny Politan. We will speak soon. Have a great day. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.